Okay, hello and welcome to our next podcast from the APA meeting in Belfast. Uh, I'm joined by Dr. Jill Lauder, who's going to talk about dextamethamidine. Will it change paediatric anaesthetic clinical practice? Uh, Dr. Lauder is a paediatric anesthesiologist, a complex paediatric pain physician, and director of acute pain service in uh, BC Children's Hospital. So welcome, Jill, and thank you for joining us. Um, can you begin by explaining what dextamethamidine is and why is it of interest to the paediatric anaesthetist? Well, dexmetomidine is a highly specific um, and selective alpha-2 adrenoreceptor agonist, and it has analgesic, amnesic, angiolytic, sympatholytic, and hemodynamic stabilizing properties, as well as providing some sleep-like sedative, sedative properties. Um, the sedative and angiolytic properties are exerted through alpha-2 adrenoreceptor stimulation of the, in the locus coriolis of the pons. Um, dexamethamidine is kind of unique because as well as providing analgesia it um, like, a little bit like ketamine doesn't cause any significant respiratory depression when used as a sole agent um, and this effect on respiratory function is reported even at high dose uh, it has some opioid sparing effects and um, these, this is very helpful as are its TIVA um, sparing effects Although it's not approved uh, for use in, um, in children, it's starting to be used increasingly in pediatric anaesthetic practice as an adjunct in anaesthesia and analgesia regimes for prevention of emergence delirium, treatment of postoperative shivering, procedural sedation in the pediatric intensive care unit. Okay, and um, is there much evidence in the literature for its efficacy in children? Well, unfortunately not. Um, Despite this explosion of interest in dexmetotomidine in paediatric practice, um, the literature uh, pertaining to its use in children is uh, limited to case reports, retrospective observational studies, and very little in the way of randomised controlled evidence, and very little in the way of comparative studies between dexmetotomidine and, and its cousin clonidine. And it's, it's not approved for use in children uh, less than 18 years old, and this is because uh, the, it's not been uh, pharmacologically tested um, by the company that's brought it on the market for uh, adults. Uh, I think we'd all really love to hear about your experience, your personal experience of its use at BC Children's Hospital. Um, I think that the important uh, two important uh, realms that we're using it, one as an adjuvant and the other as a sole agent. Um, during, ana- during anaesthesia, its opioid sparing and TIVA sparing effects means that uh, you can give just a, a very small bolus dose, and then, which enables... Uh, smoothing out of some anaesthetic techniques with TIVA, especially for airway procedures, and allows you to drop the dose of propofol down whilst maintaining good um, anaesthetic conditions. Um, Airway procedures and difficult airway procedures, I would say, are going to be one of the prime places where dexmetatomidine is going to come into its realm. It also provides really smooth uh, extubation recovery for post-operative transport and re- reduction in uh, emergence delirium, as, I, as I've already said. 
There is a lot of work out there in animal studies that it's neuroprotective even at, at high doses and therefore its potential for our neonates um, in the face of um, neuroapoptosis associated with uh, other, some of our other anaesthetic agents means that it's going to be another potential for dexmetatomidine. We are using it um, for analgesia in the post-operative period, not only on the intensive care unit, but also up on our oncology ward for some of our children that are receiving chimeric antibody because the chimeric antibody causes quite intense uh, abdominal and limb pain and can cause an hyperalgesia as soon as the chimeric antibody is started. And we found that a combination of hydromorphone with the dexmetatomidine has prevented um, the pain that has been seen in many of the other centres running the study protocol. Um, so we're very pleased with how that has worked for these patients and allowed us to use mi- minimal or sort of normal doses of uh, opioids and not have to ramp up the opioids and get into the difficult situation of opioid side effects. Okay, thanks. So you, you've actually described quite a broad range of, of uses there, which are all very attractive. Um, but could you just pick one area uh, that you could perhaps suggest might be a niche use for it, if, if there is one? So I don't think there's one niche uh, place for it. I think um, as an adjuvant for people running um, Tiva, I think it's got a real place in dropping propofol requirements and smoothing out uh, anaesthetic um, conditions. Um, as a sole agent, I would say that it is useful. Um, I think it may well become useful given intranasally um, for non-interventional uh, procedures like MRI or CT scanning. We don't really have all the evidence yet Um, of its effects on the EEG, but I do believe that it will be a very useful agent for uh, awake uh, craniotomy surgery and for interoperative electrocorticography in epilepsy surgery. So you've given us lots of positives and lots of of uses there. Um, Of course, as anaesthetists, we're always wondering about the side effects and pitfalls. Um, are, Are there any? (laughs) <laughs> yes, there are. I think that um, if you give a bolus dose of uh, dexmetatomidine too quickly, you get this immediate um, uh, bradycardia mm-hmm. and hypertension, which you can often see about a 30% decrease in, in the baseline heart rate. And the problem is is that it, it will resolve on its own and you shouldn't treat it with um, uh, anything like... Um, anticholinergic agent because you can see quite a marked uh, uh, hypertensive episode if you see that. You can always tell when uh, the patient's going to get bradycardic and hypertensive because they they develop this grey appearance when they get grey lips when you you can spot it when they're going to get this bradycardia and hypertension. But you just need to sit tight and make sure that... that, 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 uh, What sort of time period does it resolve? um, It resolves in sort of 15, 20 minutes, easily. Right. Yeah. And they, they have that appearance for that? No, no, that's only there. initially. That's okay. only initially. Okay. Um, uh, and, of course, with its bradycardic effects, it should really not be used in children receiving dig, digoxin, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, 
or any other agents that predispose to bradycardia or hypertension. Having said that, though, the um, paediatric intensive care unit think it's a great agent for stabilising their post-op cardiac patients. Um, the other side of things on the cardiac point of view is that it, it was um, put on the list of medications that are known to prolong QT interval. Um, the evidence around that at the moment is is very contradictory, and I await further studies. But uh, the patients with uh, long QT interval should it should probably be avoided. Okay. In terms of the other place where I really am not using it as well is um, neuroaxillary or uh, along a peripheral nerve. There are no studies uh, showing its comparative efficacy against clonidine. Clonidine is well recognised as being non-neurotoxic and useful both perineurally and uh, neuroaxially. And until I've got more evidence that uh, dexmetatomidine is safe, I'm not going to be using it by either of those two routes, especially as there's been a recent study that showed them in rabbits that showed that uh, dexmetatomidine may have a harmful effect on the myelin sheath when administered in high dose. But um, again, the, most of the studies have shown that it, it is neuro, it's not neurotoxic, and even if it's injected into cytic nerve, doesn't cause any, any problems. So I think we just need to await the further study before we use it by that route. Okay. From the characteristics you were describing, reducing um, TIVA doses, etc., um, there are many, many cocktails and recipes that are used for scoliosis surgery. Uh, is there a role here? Uh, that's an interesting one um, because um, the studies that are out there, mainly done by Mahmoud, would suggest that um, dexmetatomidine is okay and doesn't interfere with the uh, motor revolt potentials at low, at low doses. Uh, unfortunately, it's our experience that uh, the use of dexmetatomidine in um, our spinal patients, spinal surgery patients, where we're monitoring the motor evoked potentials and the sensory evoked potentials, is that it does interfere with the motor evoked potentials. Now, interference with motor evoked potentials is a multifactorial thing, including the temperature, the blood pressure, what the surgeons are doing, uh, hemoglobin. And so it's very difficult to discern whether it's the dexmetatomidine or other factors which are important here. But I, again, think we need more evidence before we use it in this population. And um, presently, at our institution, we're not using it um, it for our spine patients intraoperatively. Okay, thank you. Um, This morning, we we had uh, a morning discussing obstructive sleep apnea and tonsillectomy and the dangers and again, you've mentioned you've mentioned that um, this has uh, an opioid sparing effect and doesn't affect respiration. So again, is this another use potentially in severe OSA? I, I think that's one of it. I think that will be one of its niche markets in the difficult airway or in a place where that you need to avoid opioids for whatever reason. So. I haven't had the privilege to use dextamatomidine yet. Can you just give us um, an idiot's guide, if you like, to how we'd go about administering this to a child? <laughs> so um, I think if you're going to use it for something like MRI or for a difficult patient who's agitated pre-op and you want some good pre-operative uh, medication, mm-hmm. um, so 
pre-med by intranasal route would seem to be very effective and doesn't seem to cause irritation of the nasal mucosa like midazolam does. And um, so what's written out there in literature would suggest that we need to use something like two to three mics per kilo for uh, intranasal use. Um, when I'm giving a bolus dose in the, in the OR, when I'm running total intravenous anesthesia, uh, I titrate it very gently to prevent that bradycardia and hypertensive response. And so um, I will draw up um, a 0.5 microgram per kilogram dose into um, a syringe and I will give it in small aliquots to make sure that I don't see that response. Um, and I will use 0.5 to 1 for that TIVA sparing effect for transfer to recovery and maintaining it in recovery, I'll use anything between 0.1 and 0.7 mics per kilo per hour, depending on the patient. And um, our PICU docs have said that they find that if you don't get good um, sedative actualytic um, properties with it at, at, at 0.7 mics per kilo per hour, that they don't tend to up the dose because... If it's not going to work at that dose, then they feel you need to, you've need you got the wrong agent. Okay. And do you tend to see a good wake-up profile, sort of less emergency delirium, for example? So we see, well, with TIVA, we see less emergency delirium than you see with uh, sevoflurane. Um, but um, I think it does make a huge difference to how patients wake up. And if you have given a 0.5 mic per kilo bolus and the, the kidney is looking like they might be agitated. Another 0.5 titrated in slowly really does seem to drift them back off to sleep again and do what I call rebooting the hard drive so that they wake up in a nice, calm manner in the recovery ward again. So you know, up to a mic per kilo isn't unreasonable and doesn't seem to delay their discharge from hospital. Thank you. Um, certainly in the UK, we have to um, fight for new drugs, and the um, question at the top of everyone's mind is cost. Is this a factor? Well, it, like all of these things, it is very expensive, mm. um, and we have taken the uh, policy of breaking up an ampule into uh, X syringes so that they can be distributed amongst staff so that we're trying to minimise the number of ampules we're using across the OR suite. Um, the other factor is, of course, is the benefits that you attain by using the drug, um, not giving extra drugs in the recovery ward to prevent emergence agitation and then delaying their exit from recovery because you've had to give them an opioid in sure. recovery is an added benefit. So... There's pros and cons to the cost aspect of things. Jill Lauder, thank you very much. Thank you very much too.